These are not easy things to read. Uh, they are not easy things to explain. Do we really believe in a God who sends horrible scorpion locusts and scorpion horses to torture and kill the people of the world? Uh, before we start digging deeply into that, I want to point our attention to something that I think will help us understand what's going on here. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, or the term, worldview before. Worldview. A worldview is the big story that you tell and you believe about the world and the way that it is. As Christians, we, I hope, have a Christian worldview. That means we understand that the way the world works comes out of the big story of who God is, who we are, and what's happening in the world today as a result. We believe in a good God who created a good world that went badly wrong when we, when our ancestors chose their own ways instead of God's ways. And ever since then, we've been stuck in the same cycle of, of sin and violence and destruction and oppression and all of these terrible things. But then Jesus came, and Jesus broke the power of these things by dying and rising from the dead, breaking death itself, so that we no longer had to be subject to the broken ways of the world. And one day, we too will rise to a new life in God's perfect world and his coming kingdom. This is the big story we tell about the world. And it impacts the way we see and understand the world around us. When we see wars and when we see trouble and when we see that our best laid plans aren't coming to anything, we say, well, that's not terribly surprising. Because we know that as human beings, we can't think our way or work our way or invent our way out of this. God had to come and rescue us. And he is coming again one day to make it all right. When we look toward the great power structures in our world, we don't trust them. Not because we're really cynical and being like, we don't like these people or we don't want to trust these things, but because we know that only God can restore what's broken. He is our great hope. He's our Savior. And no one else can be a Savior like Jesus Christ in the same way as Jesus Christ. But there are other ways of looking at the world, too. Uh, you may have come across some of them. Most people, frankly, don't have thoughtfully examined worldviews. And I think that extends even into Christianity as well, which is part of why I made sure we talk a little bit about what is a Christian worldview this morning. I remember when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, for some of you, that's not as long ago as it was for me. But when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, the big thing was pluralism in one way or another. We've all got to figure out how to live together. We, we, we believe different things. We think different things. So here's what we're going to believe about that. Everybody's right. Pluralism led to relativism. Right? If it's true for you, then it's, it, that's what's true. That's what matters. And most of the time in the 80s and 90s when we said that, we didn't go quite as far as we do today. Uh, back then, we might have said, yeah, there is, there is something like truth. You know, there are maybe good things and bad things, but, but they don't always extend to our personal individual choices. And today, we've gone much farther uh, as a culture in saying that, well, really, there's nothing good and beautiful and true. So you just do whatever you want, and if you are powerful enough, you can get away with it. We've landed in a pretty grim place, haven't we? But the interesting thing about the 80s and 90s and this relativism and this pluralism is we didn't see where it was going, I think. 
Most of us didn't see where it was going. We thought the important thing is to be nice to everybody by not just respecting them as human beings with dignity and value and worth, but by saying whatever you want is good. It seemed like a nice thing to do, didn't it? How many of you uh, really enjoy telling other people their business, right? Saying, hey, you should live this way, you should do these things. It's uncomfortable for most of us, I think. And if it's not uncomfortable for you, you really need to stop right now because that is destructive to your soul. But it is. We we come to these these points of, of... contention in our culture, whatever it's revolving around, you know, defund the police or don't defund the police, human sexuality and gender, all these different things, and we, we realize that we don't all think the same way, and it's uncomfortable to confront each other, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to have those conversations, in part because we're afraid of what's going to happen to us if we do, because either the alt-right or the alt-left or whoever the heck it is is going to come after us and make us pay for it. And we didn't see that coming 20 and 30 years ago. 20 and 30 years ago, our worldview was just, just be nice and live and let live and everything will be fine. And now we find out things are not fine at all. They're much harder and more difficult than they ever were before. And I think that the fifth and sixth trumpets are speaking into exactly that experience in our lives. As we've been talking about the book of Revelation, uh, we've tried to... I've sum- I'm going to summarize all the places we've been so far. See, first we saw that God cares about his people who are suffering in a world that is dominated by evil systems, in which uh, the, you know, the people of the world, including we ourselves, are sometimes complicit in one way or another, and always complicit if we are apart from Jesus. Because, again, the big problem in our world is not that we don't have the wisdom to come up with the perfect system of government. It's that whatever system of government, for example, we come up with, there'll be human beings in charge of it. And human beings are the problem. Because our natures are broken. But God cares about his people who are suffering in this world. He has revealed to us That what he wants from us in this world is not that we go out and triumph on our own. That by power we overcome all of these broken things. But instead that we imitate Jesus by being faithful unto death. By loving our neighbor. By loving God. By saying, hey, there is a new world that's coming. And at that day there will be a reckoning. And that's God's business. And my business is to call you into that kingdom, to show you what it's like. Being faithful to the way of Jesus, Revelation tells us, is the only way to conquer. This is possible in a world gone haywire because God rules in heaven and nothing on earth happens without God's say-so. Even the evil things that happen on the earth are unleashed by God, as Romans 8 tells us, in hope that we will look out at the world and say, this isn't working, and look to him as our Savior. He has shown us through the seal judgments that patterns of divine judgment are already at work in this world. This is the For example, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you remember this, taking away peace from the earth. Has peace been taken away from the earth, folks? Yes. Taking away economic security from the earth. Has economic security been taken away from the earth? Yes. And so on and so on. 
The seal judgments reveal that those patterns of divine judgment are already at work. But in the fifth seal, God reminds us that he has sealed his people with a different sort of seal. That although the rest of the world may be dying, we are destined for life. Though we may suffer in the midst of unjust systems, though, though the world may be haywire around us, we have certainty in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we will see the good kingdom that's coming. We are sealed and protected by God. And now we're all the way up to the trumpets. And in the trumpets, God is warning the world. The seal judgments are explaining to God's people it's going to be okay, even though it doesn't feel okay. The trumpet judgments are warning the world that if you don't turn around from the direction you're heading, if you don't change that worldview with which you see the world, that you are ultimately in charge and you are ultimately accountable for the state of the world, then what these trumpet judgments are foreshadowing, death and destruction and torment, will become the permanent lot of your life. And in the fifth trumpet, if you caught it, just to refresh your memory, the fifth angel sounds his trumpet, and John sees a star that's fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. So he knows something about the star right away, because stars don't use keys. The star is representative of something. And then we go back to the Gospel of Luke, and we hear Jesus saying, I saw Satan descending as a star fallen from heaven. And we understand that God is unleashing Satan upon the earth, unleashing the accuser upon the earth. And Satan opens the abyss, which again is a symbol you can't find an abyss somewhere on earth and go like, there are crazy locusts with scorpion tails inside it. That's not the point. But instead, the abyss represents the bottomless evil that is at work in our world and how Satan is given the key to unleash it upon the earth. And the sun and the sky are darkened by the smoke from the abyss. We're going to come back to that symbol in a moment. And then we get these locusts, these wild locusts. If you uh, remember the description of these, they look like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, they something like a crown of gold. Their faces look like human faces. That's suggestive, isn't it? Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth was like lion's teeth. Uh, and so on and so on. I mean, these are pretty fearsome-sounding things. Some people, uh, the futurists who interpret the book of Revelation, say that maybe these are something like helicopters because they got these tails and you know, they're armored and all this, and, and we're about to see war unleashed. Uh, and then when we get to the sixth trumpet and the, the horsemen and their riders, they say maybe those are like armored vehicles carrying people and, and tanks and those sorts of things. I'm going to say that's the wrong way to read this for a couple of reasons, one of which is for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to apply these things directly to their experience, and they've always been wrong. So let's have the humility to learn from the people who came before us and the mistakes that they've made. But secondly, what in the world are people in the first century who just want to know how to be faithful to Jesus from day to day going to do with pictures of horses and tanks in their lives? And if you answered nothing, you would be correct. The book of Revelation is written for us, folks, just like the rest of the scriptures, but it is not written to us. It's written to those early Christians in the first century. It has to make sense for them in order to make sense for us. 
There's more that injustice should be said about all of those things, but I'm already running low on time, so we're going to keep on going. What's the purpose of these locusts? Well, they're not allowed to kill the people of the earth who haven't been sealed by God, like God's people, like the church. They're not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. I heard some of you laugh when that came up, because it's like, oh, good, like, what a relief. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. It's interesting, in Asia Minor, there are several different types of scorpion that are there, including one of the world's deadliest scorpions, uh, the Arab, the Arabian fat-tail scorpion. I am not an entomologist. I don't know if scorpions are technically arachnids, so I don't know if entomologists study them or not. But we're going to go with that for this morning. They're some of the deadliest scorpions on earth, and they cause seizures and tremors, and they cause your heart to get all messed up and fail. They can kill you if you're not treated medically. Within about seven hours uh, is when that risk of death goes way up. This is all according to Wikipedia, I believe. But it's this enormously painful and terrifying sort of picture, isn't it? Uh, I've never been bitten by a black widow. Has anyone here been bitten by a black widow? Or maybe a rattlesnake? Does that happen? You need Hal Wyatt here today because he has been bitten by a rattlesnake. But I'm told that it's one of the most excruciating experiences you can go through, the way that poison acts in your body. And whatever these, these demon locusts are doing, these symbols are doing, they're causing that kind of agony. I want to share with you a passage from... Uh, the Brothers Karamazov uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky in the 19th century. I, I read this book a number of years ago. Uh, although some people consider it to be one of the greatest pieces of Western literature, it wasn't my favorite. I'll just acknowledge that at the beginning. But there is an absolutely compelling end to this book. It's a story of uh, three brothers and their father. Their father is murdered in the beginning of the book. And you have three brothers very different from each other. The oldest, Demetria, uh, Dimitri, filled with rage, just always acting out of his anger. The middle child, Ivan, who is a brilliant philosopher. And then the third child, Alyosha, who is, I think he's not technically a monk. It's been a while since I read this. But he is studying with the monks, and he is a very godly and kind and loving man. And Dimitri, the, the rage monster, is accused of killing his father. And uh, the end of the book is, is the trial, and Dimitri is eventually, I believe, found guilty, if, again, if I'm remembering this correctly. But there's a conversation that happens between Ivan, who has this foreboding in his heart over uh, what's happening in this trial and what's happening with this brother. And he feels like maybe somehow he is responsible, and he can't figure out why. Ivan's philosophy, the, the thing that he loves to say more than anything else, is all things are lawful. He says, there is no God, and therefore all things are lawful. And there is a, a, an epileptic man who greatly admires Ivan and is always trying to spend time with him, and Ivan doesn't care for him. His name's Smirdikov. If you ever read Russian literature, by the way, you need a notebook to keep track of all of the characters because there's like 800 characters in every book, and they all have about 17 names. So I'm helping you out this morning. We've got Smirdikov and we've got Ivan. And Smirdikov 
speaks to Ivan at the end, and Ivan is just a step away from madness. Smirnikov said, I thought that all things are lawful. It was true what you taught me, sir, for you told me a lot about that then. For if there is no infinite God, then there is no virtue either, and there is no need of it, whatever. That was true what you said, and that was how I thought too. Ivan doesn't believe Smirnikov is very smart. He says, you came to it with your own mind, Ivan said with a crooked smile, with your guidance, sir. And now I supposed you have come to believe in God if you were returning my father's money to me. Part of the crime was some of his father's money was stolen. No, sir, I have not, Smirnikov whispered. Then why are you returning it? Well, that's enough. Never mind, sir, Smirnikov said with another wave of his hand. Why, you yourself were always saying then that all things are lawful. So now, why are you so worried, you yourself, sir? No one can trace this crime to you, Smirnikov has been telling him. Why are you so worried? You even want to go to court and testify against yourself that I, Smirnikov, did the murder, which was true. Only that will not be. You will not go and testify, Smirnikov decided again, resolutely and with conviction. In another place, this is a very lengthy conversation. In another place in the chapter, Smirnikov says, So I want this evening to provide to you, Ivan, and to your face that the principal murderer in it all is exclusively you. And I am only the less principal one, even though it was I who did the murder. But you are the main murderer before the law. See, Ivan went around preaching to everybody, there is no God, and therefore there is no right or wrong. There is, in Smirnikov's words, no virtue. There is no need of it. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound like the sort of thing we hear in our society these days? Is that the worldview that many people have, maybe even is infiltrated into some of our own hearts? It's not really good and evil. There's only what works and what doesn't work. If they get away with doing that thing, well, we should do it too, right? Because it works. Americans are great pragmatists. We always have been. And yet, Smirnikov reminds Ivan, what you think and what you believe has consequences in the world that we live in. You are the murderer. They may have only been ideas to you but they had an impact in the world that we live in. See, when we read about the abyss being open and smoke rising it from like, like smoke from a gigantic furnace, what does smoke do? Uh, remember a couple, three years ago when we had all the big fires up in the mountains? Remember how all of the smoke came right down to Lemon Cove and hung out here? And we would drive out to Visalia and be like, it's only a little smoky here, these lucky guns. Smoke obscures, doesn't it? Smoke hides the truth behind it. Even on hazy days, there are mountains out there, right? We're taking it on faith because we can't see them. But there they are. See, we are deceived by the ways that we think in this world. And we constantly deceive each other. That's the way of the world. To gain power by telling a story that then convinces other people that, oh, you're right, or, oh, I should follow you, or, oh, I should believe in you, or, oh, I should do the things that you say I should do. 
and what comes out of it at the end of the day. I love, even if this wasn't my favorite book, I love how Dostoevsky brings out for us that Ivan understands. There's something intuitive in his mind and in his heart that I am connected to the murder of my father somehow. And where he was saying, all things are lawful, do whatever you want. And he was acting like he believed it. In his heart, he didn't, did he? In his heart, he descended into madness because he was convinced, really, that these are things that shouldn't be. It's this emotional and psychological and spiritual torture. And God's saying, I am no longer going to withhold the consequences, the the moral and spiritual and emotional and psychological consequences from the world. I'm going to reveal to the world the emptiness and the bankruptness of its philosophy. Uh, It's been said very frequently that... uh, Doing the same thing and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Um, And yet that's all that we do. That's all that we do. What was the, I mean, as Westerners, uh, this is changing, strangely enough, but it used to be that we were pretty sure communism was a horrible, terrible thing. And some people will sometimes object that, well, it wasn't communism, it was Stalin. It was a horrible and terrible thing. But you know what the problem with communism is? There are always men like Stalin. Do you know what the problem with democracy is? There are always men like Julius Caesar, who will take up the mantle of power and say it is for the good of the people and will never lay it down again. We keep doing the same thing, and trusting and relying on the same things and expecting different results, and they never come. And that's the fifth trumpet. That's the fifth trumpet. I'm going to touch on the sixth trumpet just so very briefly because, frankly, there's a lot of similarity between it and the fifth trumpet. I really think the same thing is going on here, but looked at from different perspectives. You have in the fifth trumpet the thought processes in the world that that create darkness and that God now hands us over to them. And as a result, it's as if we are stung by the scorpion and we suffer as people. And then in the sixth trumpet, we hear that uh, in the second woe, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the result of this is an army of mounted troops of twice 10,000 times 10,000. And if you're doing the math, that's 200 million troops, which is larger than any, I mean, it's laughably larger than any army that's ever been assembled before. I googled again, uh, what was the largest battle in human history? And they, they think probably the battle of Stalingrad, where there are about two to three million soldiers on either side, uh, total between the two sides, a hundred times bigger than the largest battle that's ever happened. And these horses, if you keep on reading, they look an awful lot like the locusts, which is why I think these things are connected. Once again, the power of the horses uh, is in their mouths and in their tails, like the locusts who have a scorpion sting. But in this case, their tails are like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. And these particular, in the sixth trumpet, We see that where it was only torture, only, in the fifth trumpet, now a third of the earth dies in battle. 
And once again, this represents the fact that the threat of war looms over us forever and ever and ever. Uh, The description of the horses here is actually very similar. There are some notable things uh, that make it sound like these horses are meant to represent the Phoenicians, who were the great enemy of the Roman Empire. We believe this because uh, it says the four angels were bound at the great river Euphrates, and that was the boundary between uh, Rome and, uh, I'm sorry, did I say Phoenicia? I think I meant the Parthians, Uh, between Rome and the Parthian Empire. And they fought for centuries at this place, uh, where it talks about the power of the horses being in their tails, Uh, the Phoenician... Phoenicians, whoever the heck these guys are that start with a P, the Parthians, when they used to fight with the Romans, uh, they absolutely slaughtered the Roman legions with their tactics, which would be to suck the Romans to follow them. They'd fight, then they'd retreat, and they'd retreat up a hill, and the Romans would follow them, and the Parthians were great archers, and they'd turn around and slaughter the Romans as they pursued them. It would have been playing exactly, it's basically like he's writing and saying, you know, China or writing and saying, maybe even Russia, in our case. That's what the original audience would be hearing, or the equivalent of what they'd be hearing. Your great enemy, troops on the border, ready to invade. Because what happens when we deceive each other in order to gain power for ourselves? People die. People die. They always do whether it's racism or whether it's outright war, whether it's over water or anything else, when power gets exercised against power, people die. And here, we'll leave it with this. Here is where the Christian worldview is so very different. I like uh, when we sang in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It says that Jesus is on the tree, right? The place, the cross, the place where he dies. But what is he on the tree? He is enthroned in victory. Colossians tells us, as I've mentioned this many times, that Jesus triumphed over the powers in this world by the cross, and he put them to shame. And the reason is twofold. The reason first is that who is the righteous man? the man who condemns the other to death, or the man who goes willingly to save others. The cross proves Jesus to be righteous and good. But secondly, and just as importantly, Jesus doesn't stay dead, does he? See, the reason we keep telling each other we have to do these things because otherwise the bad guys will win. We have to do things we normally wouldn't do or we, would, we normally would call evil. Like they did this bad thing, so we have to do it too or we're going to fall behind just because frankly we don't really believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead. We don't really believe in the power of the resurrection. That if I die, I have lost nothing at the end of the day. That if I die, God will speak to the world of its evil and its brokenness and convict the world of sin, be it in repentance or in judgment. That's why we keep going to the way of the dragon instead of the way of the lamb, which is a book I've been reading. I highly recommend it to anybody. What is the source of Christian power? Does it come from below or does it come from above? 
It matters the way we look at the world and what we really think about it. It matters how we describe and how we understand the, the order and the purpose in the world that we live in. It matters for our own suffering and those around us, and it matters for our very lives. Let's be people who live out of the power of the resurrection, who live trusting in Jesus Christ instead of needing to be the ones who fix everything. Uh, so I lied. This is the very last thing. little example, illustration. Uh, so I'm, if you hadn't noticed, I'm a man and a husband. And my wife and my children come to me sometimes with problems. And what do men husbands want to do for their wives and children's? Fix them. Right? That's what we want to do. We want there to be a tool for that. We want there to be a saying for that. We want there to be like a, I'll go punch that guy out because he made fun of you for that. Something along those lines. We want to be able to fix it. If you've been a father or a husband before, since it's Father's Day, guys, can you fix every problem? No. Thank you for the person who had the courage to say no. God bless you. <laughs> no. Because some problems aren't ours to fix. They belong to God. And in the meantime, we give him our faithfulness by loving God and loving our neighbor.